This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The coronation of King Charles is almost upon us. Preparations for what's being described as a toned-down affair compared to his mother's coronation in 1953 are now in high gear. The world is about to descend on London, and those who did not receive an invite will be glued to their TVs and other devices in the wee hours of May 6th, cup of tea in hand, pinky finger extended, singing God Save the King. But not everyone is on board with this coronation. Angus Reid conducted a survey earlier this week gauging how Canadians feel about King Charles, his wife Camilla, and whether now might be the time for Canada to split from the monarchy. Joining us with the King and Country survey details is Dave Korzynski, Research Director Angus Reid. Welcome to The Feed. Dave, it's really, really good to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Fascinating survey, obviously, very timely. The headline for your survey when you published it read, King and Country, three in five want to chuck Charles as Canadians cool toward the new monarch. Really interesting, and that a lot of reaction just to the title of your survey. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one that... that uh, you know, we never know what we're going to get in terms of the connection with the public when we release data. But this one had a lot of people talking, uh, a lot of uh, interviews this week and conversation online. So that's always nice to, uh, you know, connect with people. It's something that they're interested in, even if they're not necessarily interested. That's that's one of the really interesting things about this is that people want to talk about it. But then when you look at how they feel about Charles, uh, the relationship is is not what it was with Queen Elizabeth II. That that is uh, certainly uh, the case that we're seeing here, where just 28% of Canadians say that they view Charles favorably, which is actually down about 11 points from his high point in in uh, 2020. So you know when when there were lower stakes, people felt a little bit more warmly toward Charles, but. That now that uh, they're they're considering what the future looks like and and his reign, just 28% viewing him favorably. Whereas the last time we asked about Queen Elizabeth, she was at 63% wow. and kind of lived in those the 60s, low 70s. So quite a drop off when you look at uh, one generation to the next. I'm going to cherry pick some of your findings. So 60% of Canadians asked oppose recognizing Charles as king and all it entails. So they were asked about aspects of Charles' new role, swearing an oath to King Charles, uh, his likeness on our currency, having to sing God Save the King. Uh, So a lot of opposition beyond the 60% not wanting to recognize Charles as the king. Yeah, and that's a you know that's a number that that has has risen as well. You know, we we've been tracking these for you know, almost a decade, uh, going back to 2016. Now, when we started asking about Charles in some of our surveys, because we were anticipating this, you know, the Queen was was already in her her late 80s at that point, uh, and w- we knew that at some point, um, you know, she was going to pass away, and there would be this transition. So, you want to gauge how people feel about this as we go along. Um, and what we see now, three and five saying that they don't support uh, swearing oaths to King Charles. And then on those individual elements, like you mentioned, I think those are where um, it becomes more tangible for people because the monarchy is, is just this thing that exists off in the distance and, you know, on your day-to-day life, you're not really thinking about it. But you always see the queen on the money. Uh, that's a very, uh, you know, common experience. People have had her in their lives for, um, if they're older people, of 70-plus years. Um, so on, on issues like that, you know, only 38% say that they would like to find a place for Charles on Canadian currency, uh, 62% saying no thanks to that. Um, and then swearing an oath to King Charles at official ceremonies, even slightly lower support, uh, 36%. Wanting to do that, so when you look at these these different actions and how we can entrench them in our our traditions, you do see that there is um, a lower level of support, and I think that that's picking up on the trend that that we have seen recently in terms of the monarchy kind of fading from Canadians' uh, daily lives and, and and thinking about it. 
and we've got this transition point now. So it's a really it's coming into view now that we've got the transition and the coronation uh, just next weekend. Fifty-two percent of Canadians believe that Charles will be a worse monarch than Elizabeth. That, that number surprised me for whatever reason, and I certainly am not going to offer my opinions on this at all. But I would have thought that number would have been greater. That that more Canadians would believe that Charles would be a worse monarch than Elizabeth. You know, I, I thought that was a kind of an interesting point, too, because a lot of the things that Charles um, has done in his own life leading up to this are things that I think the, the majority of Canadians are on board with, or at least supportive of. Um, he has famously been an advocate for environmental causes since the 1970s. Um, he, he was only 21 years old when he started working his uh, environmental activism. He's uh, the member or 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 uh, participates in more than 400 charitable organizations. Um, if you look at an issue like uh, Indigenous people living in Canada, Charles has, has shown some um, sympathy towards potentially having an apology from the Crown for for the monarchy and, and Britain's role in, in treatment of Indigenous people living in Canada. So I think that he's got a lot of areas of connection, um, but it's just how how you go about creating that you know he is a figurehead he is representing an entirely different country um across an ocean so he's not going to have those intimate conversations with canadians it's more how we cover them and and what we share about his own views so i think he does have a little bit of room to ingratiate himself but overall it's that whole tough act to follow issue where we had this really uh revered figure in queen elizabeth who reigned for more than 70 years and now having, you know, having her pass away and, and Charles be the replacement for that. It's always tough to come in and be the, the person who follows someone um, who has kind of a legendary aura. So I think uh, maybe we'll see some improvement on, uh, on his numbers over the next few years or over the next decade. Uh, but but the starting point is is not ideal, I would say, in terms of public opinion. Did you find out whether Canadians have long memories? You know, you think about the scandals uh, back in the day when it came to Charles and Diana, but Charles and Camilla, and I'm going to bring her into mm-hmm. this discussion shortly. But it was, you know, really we heard uh, recordings of things that Charles said to Camilla that were, you know, you would never share with anybody uh, under the age of 21. <laughs> That's for sure. Are, are people yeah. remembering that or have they just packed that away and and you know chalked it up to growing up or or you know bad behavior but bad boy and now he's okay he's the king yeah i think that there is some some a, a generational aspect to this but what's interesting is that the you know the numbers at least for supporting continuing the monarchy don't change a lot by uh by age but if you look at the favorability of king charles um, he's actually viewed a little more favorably by older Canadians hmm. at, at 35% once you hit that 55-plus mark, whereas it's only 21% for people who are 18 to 34. So there is a generational gap there, but I think what's, what stands out more is that the the unfavorable numbers are are pretty consistent across age group. They hover around that 50% mark. Um, but what what is really interesting when you look at the timeline, people do respond may, maybe not so much to to Charles, but they do respond to the events that that kind of impact the royals. If you look at, um, I dug up some of these numbers uh, in terms of should Canada continue as a constitutional monarchy, and you can go back to the first number I have is 1978, and it's at 55 percent support. Uh, 37% opposition, and then you get a handful of people who don't really know generally. So 55% is where we start. We dropped to 50% in 1991, and then 1992 is a real turning point uh, just in terms of that's the the terrible year yes. or the horrible year um, that Queen Elizabeth uh, shared. That's, you know, three of the uh, her, her children having their marriages fall apart or their, their partners separating we see a 10-point drop between 1991 and uh, 1994. So now we're only at 40% support for maintaining the monarchy. Mm. It hovers around there for a little bit. And what we really see is that in about 2020, that's when we start to drop off. And this is, I think, picking up on a little bit of the anti-monarchy movement where you've got these colonized uh, nations, formerly colonized nations, Jamaica, Barbados, 
who are separating themselves from the monarchy. And, and Canadians start to look at this and say, yeah, maybe we don't need to maintain this tradition. And now you go from 55% in 1978 to just 27% who want to maintain the monarchy now. Um, and the Queen Elizabeth effect, obviously, down seven points, even just from last year. So that's where you can really see it. So I thought that I had found in your survey that 52% of Canadians do not want our country to continue as a constitutional Mm -hmm. monarchy, almost all of whom within that number, 88% of the 52% that you talk to, believe it's worth looking into severing ties. And again, you're right, you know, all of this conversation kind of is dredged up again when there are big events like a coronation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and what's, what's, um, I think really interesting for us is when you look at that issue of should Canada leave the monarchy, obviously the views of Quebecers are, are uh, skew that pretty heavily uh, because in Quebec there is that, that stronger history of, of uh, that anti-monarchy movement just with the, our, our own Canadian history, um, but pretty strong support in terms of leaving the monarchy. But what happens when you ask the, that 52% it's not as easy as just saying, okay, we don't want to be in the monarchy anymore. Let's uh, introduce a bill that, that severs our ties and then we'll move on. There, after we patriated the Constitution in 1982, there was this uh, element that was built into the Constitution that requires essentially unanimous agreement from the provinces in order to do so. Yeah. Uh, that is something, you know, if you, if you live in the world of data and polling, there's not a ton of agreement these days on issues. So to get everybody together and say, okay, this is something we're going to do. We're going to amend the constitution and, and we'll create a new head of state. That's a challenge. So we introduced that to, to Canadians and just said, did you know it, it, we have to change the constitution for this and you have to get everybody on the same page. You lose about 55% of those people who say they don't want to remain a monarchy or a constitutional monarchy. So you, you end up with closer to 25% of Canadians who want to leave and think it's worth it uh, to go through the process. And then you've got smaller groups who are kind of on either side and say, you know, it's not ideal, but let's just let's go along with it. Or the quarter of Canadians who really like it and want to stay in the monarchy, they think it's an important tradition and a part of Canada. So I think we're much more divided once you uh, dig into the 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 machinations of what it would actually take. Uh, and that's why, you know, in my professional opinion over here as a data analyst, I, I just don't think that this is going to be something that a, a federal politician really picks up and says, we've got to make this change and, and plant their flag on it because Canadians are just worried about, you know, their their household uh, income levels and, and environmental issues and these really big picture things. Whereas, Somebody running on a, a monarchy platform, I think, might uh, might not resonate quite as highly. Can we talk about the elephant in the room? And and I, I hate to use that phrase, but I'm going to Camilla, Queen Consort. Mm-hmm. That was what Queen Elizabeth II wished her to be referred to as Queen Consort. But the palace has wanted to drop the word consort, and indeed has done so in what we see in the coronation invites. So how are Canadians feeling about Camilla, number one, whether she's called Queen Consort or Queen Camilla, but just referring to her as Queen? And and are we recognizing Camilla as the Queen of Canada? Yeah, the Canadians generally don't like that idea. I think that they um, would prefer the term Queen Consort, if any. Um, about three in five say that she shouldn't be referred to as Queen at all. Uh, they would they would prefer that we just vacate that title for now, and, and we've got King Charles, and that's enough. One in five support that the, t- the title of Queen Consort, which Queen Elizabeth would have preferred, and one in five say that Queen Camilla is fine. Uh, they they are okay with that, and they think that that's a title that she can carry. So you do have a lot of people saying that they they don't really like the the decision that has been made, and when you look at her personal favorability, uh, she actually fares worst of all of the, the royal members that we ask people to praise in this survey. Uh, 18% view her favorably, uh, 54% say they have an unfavorable view of her, and 
uh, don't have an opinion. What's, what's interesting is if you look at young men, 45% of them don't have an opinion on this. So you can see where where the attention to um, the, the ins and outs of the royal family kind of falls off a little bit demographically. But overall, if you look at that ratio, that's about a three-to-one ratio of unfavorable to favorable. So I think Queen Camilla, in, in terms of um, that upward uh, movement in terms of the Canadian public and, and how we feel about her, she also has uh, some some work to do, if you will, uh, alongside her husband, because neither of them are viewed particularly favorably, uh, which is not necessarily the case for the younger royals. So whether you like it or not, the coronation takes place on May the 6th, and a lot of people sitting on the fence, a lot of people on one side of this or on the other, but everyone's talking about it. And I thank you so much, Dave Krasinski, Research Director, Angus Reed, for putting out the survey and for digging deep into it with us just now on the feed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So if you are planning to soak in the pomp, pageantry, and tradition surrounding the coronation of King Charles, there is a live viewing party being held right here in our own backyard. With her fascinator firmly in place and her cup of tea steeping as we speak, Newmarket Aurora MPP Don Gallagher-Murphy joins us now with all the details of her big Coronation Day event. Welcome to the feed, Dawn. Really great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Anne, for having me. Pleasure to be here. So where did this idea of yours come from, holding a live viewing party on Coronation Morning? Absolutely. In fact, it came from a 20-year-old volunteer of mine. And I. it was interesting. We were talking about the coronation coming up, and it was uh, him who mentioned to me, you know, it would be great if we had some type of a viewing party or something because this is our next king. And I said, you know what? I absolutely agree with you, and I think I should be the person who puts on this viewing party. So but let's just say I took it from there and uh, working with my amazing staff in the constituency office, we were able to work with the Aurora Legion and uh, secure the um, a venue there. And then the rest of the planning has uh, been going uh, steadily. So I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have it on the big screen starting at 6 o'clock in the morning when the uh, coronation uh, commences. And we will go until probably about 11 o'clock in the morning. So I am encouraging all my constituents of the great riding of Newmarket Aurora to put on Fascinator or your vintage hat and uh, come on out and let's enjoy it together. And we'll have scones and tea and coffee and a breakfast. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. Will they be mostly seniors enjoying this event or will there be young people attending, do you think? Well, I know that I have so far about um, eight volunteers who are going to be assisting me, and um, at least four of them, half of them, are under the age of 24. So there you go. I love that. All right, so Buckingham Palace put out a statement uh, not long ago. The coronation will reflect the monarch's role today and look forward to the future while being rooted in long-standing traditions and pageantry. So what are you expecting, what are you personally expecting to see on coronation morning? Uh, honestly, a lot of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll throw something in there and uh, that you know about me and one of the rationales why I'm doing this as well is that my father was an Anglican priest. And in the Anglican Church, it is the monarchy Um, the Church of England. They are the head of our church. So I remember the days when my dad would get us up at four and five and six in the morning to watch all of the royal weddings, etc. And I have carried on that tradition. So to me, I'm looking at the tradition. Um, I'm also looking to see uh, some more modernization coming into this. And I do think that Prince Charles is a bit different than his mother um, and his sons. Being an older gentleman who has these young sons who are uh, very much uh, modern 
um, a gentleman, uh, I think we will expect to see a few different things as well, too. It's great to be able to see Canadians as well. You know, we'll be looking at who has been invited. We understand the Governor General will be there. We're not sure mm-hmm. who else will be on the list, uh, and it will probably be quite small. The event itself is only 2,000 people compared to Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which was, if I'm not mistaken, eight or 9,000 people. But in the procession, right. and for a lot of people, the processions of to and from Westminster Abbey are really exciting. We understand that yeah. five members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police musical ride, the Mounties' renowned performance cavalry unit, will be kind of front and centre in the procession both ways. Absolutely, and I'm so proud of that. In fact, we've always had some type of Canadian uh, representation uh, at any of these royal events, and I'm so proud that uh, as part of the Commonwealth, uh, the king is going, well, the king-to-be will be including uh, Canada there, and we're so proud of our um, our Royal Mount Police and uh, having them there on their uh, horses, I think it's going to be amazing. So a coronation, in essence, is the crowning of a sovereign or their spouse. In this case, it's both. So it kind of is the crowning of, of both King Charles and Queen Camilla. What have your mm-hmm. constituents said to you about Camilla? Queen Camilla, Queen Consort Camilla. Queen Consort is what Queen Elizabeth wished she, her to be called. Buckingham Palace, mm-hmm. is the invitation that came out said Queen Camilla. How are your constituents feeling about Camilla and her presence? Uh, I'll be very honest with you, and I have not received anything negative. So I think, quite honestly, it's a positive when you're not hearing anything negative. Um, the things that I've been hearing are, um, well, you know, he did get divorced, and, uh, you know, and is Camilla really? Well, you know what? I think we put all of those thoughts aside. And at the end of the day, this is his wife. This is his love. And uh, she does um, require the respect um, uh, from the Commonwealth. So I will look uh, to her as being our queen and him our king. Said like a true diplomat or politician, whichever one you prefer. (laughs) Dawn, for our listeners, let's just review exactly what, where, and when. We know why. Yes, exactly. So it will be held on Saturday morning. We're about a week away now. So Saturday morning, which is May the 6th, it will start at 6 a.m. in the morning at the Aurora Canadian Legion Hall, and that is located at 105 Industrial Parkway North in Aurora. Newmarket Aurora, MPP Don Gallagher-Murphy. I thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks for setting this up. It's in our own backyard, and for those who want to be a part of the coronation, this is the place to be. And I have one phrase to say to you as we say goodbye. Pip-pop, cheerio. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cheerio. <laughs> Bye, Don. Thank, the- thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, the labor shortage and the eight-day work week. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. A new report is suggesting that small business owners are clocking 59 hours a week. Tina Cortez with The Impact. Economist Lorena Bomal is with CFIB and joins us next. Thanks for your time today, Lorena. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about the eight-day workweek report, tell us briefly about the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Who and what does it represent? So the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, CFIB, is Canada's largest association of small and medium-sized businesses 
with 97,000 members across every industry and region across Canada. So CFIB is dedicated to increasing business owners' chances of success by driving policy changes at all levels of, of government. So you can learn more at cfib.ca. And if you want to learn more about the research we do, you can go to uh, cfib.ca slash research. Okay, so this report indicates that small business owners are working the equivalent of an eight-day work week. Why is that? So we know that business owners in Canada are highly affected by labor shortages. In fact, it's about 59% of them that are affected uh, by labor shortages across Canada. So we know also from the report, so we did a survey to our members, and uh, they, they, they mentioned that the, the, the first impact that they're having uh, is the number of hours they have to work to make up for the shortage. So with that being said, we were digging a bit further into the number of hours they actually worked. And in fact, they are working 59 hours per week for those that are being short-staffed. Are there certain sectors affected more than others? So hospitality is a sector where uh, more owners are working more hours or they are more impacted, and the agriculture sector is also more affected. So if business owners are logging, you know, this many hours, does it mean there is little opportunity to focus on growth or growing the business in general? Yeah, so the fact that small business owners are devoting so many additional hours to current business operations is significant because, in fact, that time could be spent on other priorities, as you said. So whether it's professional and even personal. So, for instance, owners could devote more time to business planning and development, looking into government programs, etc. So they are not doing that by working more hours uh, because they are towards business operations. Now, along with the growth then, you know, labor shortage must have an impact on overall business sales, I would assume. Um, yes. So the first impact, as mentioned before, is the number of hours worked by business owners. But of course, about half of them mentioned that their employees are working more hours. So the third and the fourth uh, impacts of labor shortages on business owners are more on the financial side of things. So the first one, for almost all of them, they have to refuse contracts or refuse sales. And the other one is the reduced uh, service offerings. So those two are really uh, impactful uh, to business owners as well. So if you're reducing sales, that likely means that many of them will not survive. Is that the case? So it's for sure that working more hours and, yes, um, refusing sales can impact businesses. So for sure, it's, it's not helping them at all, uh, the labor shortages. That's why we really try to have governments acting to solve labor shortages, to help those business owners that are affected and that have to work more hours. And of course, as you mentioned before, you refuse contracts ourselves. And if the labor shortage is prolonged, what happens to these small businesses? What is the long-term impact? So one of the impact could be maybe that less people are interested in entrepreneurship. That can be one impact. Uh, but overall, what we can really say is that we need solutions from governments to really help them so they can survive and they can serve our communities. And we've often heard that small business, they often drive the economy. You've talked about solutions from government. What types of solutions then are you expecting or are your members expecting? So we have three sets of solutions. So the first one really address the available uh, labor pool. So it can be measures uh, targeting older workers or young workers or simply um, simplify improving and improving the immigration uh, processes. So that's really to increase the labor pool of workers. Another solution can be just to reduce red tape. So that can give owners back some a few hours, give them some time. And the last uh, set of solution is really towards uh, tax uh, credits. 
so to improve productivity, for example. So it can be stimulating by automation, uh, tax credits, etc. Lorena, if our listeners want more information about this report or the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, where can they find it? If you want more information on CFIB or about the report, you can go at cfib.ca slash research. Kevin Frankish now with a 10-year-old plastic pollution fighter from Markham. She is 10 years old and already doing more to try and save our planet than most other people. Maya Thero is focusing her energies on reducing the seemingly unnecessary use of plastic, in particular, those little plastic stickers you find on produce in the grocery store. Maya joins me right now from her Markham home. Hi, Maya. Hi, it's nice to meet you. And very nice to meet you. Tell me a little bit about Maya's plastic pollution campaign. Well, the campaign, like you said, is called Maya's Plastic Pollution Campaign. And the goal is to bring awareness to the tiny little stickers on fruits and vegetables, PLU stickers. And so you'll be surprised. These stickers cause a lot of issues, although they're very small, mainly because they're made out of plastic and that they usually go into the compost on accident. So when the stickers go into the compost, that bin of compost is taken directly to a composting facility. And because the PIU sticker is so small, it manages to escape the screening process undetected. That further goes into the soil and turns into microplastics, contaminating the soil and harming the crops. But if the PIU sticker is detected, it is sent to a landfill. And due to the presence of other organic matter, it produces greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide and methane, which contribute to many environmental issues, such as climate change and air pollution. Now, these stickers cause a lot of issues, and they're single use, which brings me to the second goal of this campaign, banning the plastic PIU stickers in Canada. Now, these stickers are causing unnecessary plastic waste, and we're trying to expand the ban to include plastic PIU stickers as a seventh banned single-use plastic. It's an easy fix, and these stickers are causing a lot of problems, and they're not benefiting anyone, right? So, Maya, you know, I'm having trouble believing that you are 10 years old. Are you really 10 or 20? So I'm, I'm actually ten right now. Oh my gosh, Maya, you 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 are you're just a joy, and and you are very passionate about this. Why are you so passionate about? I'm gonna use that word, passionate. How how come you're just so passionate about this? Well, it started off when I was so young, when I was like three, and my parents would read me books about animals and the environment. And that's what sparked an interest for the environment in me. And once I learned to read, I started reading as many books as I could about animals in the environment, trying trying to devour every piece of information I could. But as I read, I realized that animal populations were declining and human populations were increasing. And the correlation between the two was very hard to ignore. Human activity was the main cause. That's when I decided that this is what I want to do, and we need to fix this fast. We don't have too much time left. And a few years went by, and I finally could not contain myself any longer. Reading's good, but it's not going anywhere if you're not doing anything with that knowledge. So I decided to reach out to many environmental organizations, but, uh, many environmental organizations, but I was a little disappointed when many of them got back to me saying, Come back when you're 14. And I was a little disappointed until Friends of the Earth Canada got back to me. It was actually the CEO, Ms. Beatrice Olavastri, that got back to me. And I was really excited. And so once we had our first meeting, we did, uh, my first homework assignment was to go to the grocery store and look at the tiny plastic stickers. And oh my goodness. That was not a usual trip to the grocery store, let me tell you. (laughs) I went with my mom that evening, and instead of seeing the aisles and aisles of fresh fruit and veggies, I saw the aisles and aisles of plastic PLU stickers, and I was so shocked how many there were. 
And once I realized how many there were and how big of an issue this was, I decided to team up with Friends of the Earth Canada to help find a solution. Now, we, we you know, uh, you're, you're small. Uh, these little plastic stickers are small. But when it comes to plastics, um, you used a word uh, a little bit earlier that, that shows that, that small, you know, this, this problem, even though it may appear small, is a big problem, and that's microplastics. Tell me about microplastics, what you've learned so far. So the thing about microplastics is plastic takes a long time to decompose, or they'll either take hundreds of years or even thousands, or they will just never decompose. And so these stickers, especially when they go into the ocean, when they break down, they don't completely break down. They turn into microplastics, which is what you just mentioned. And they can really harm a lot of species and our environment, and especially in our waters. And speaking of microplastics, I read an article uh, a couple months ago that showed that 59% of whales have microplastics in their gut. What do you want to do when you grow up? I, I want to eventually, when I'm an adult, I want to become a conservationist and environmental activist. I've always been passionate and interested in animals and the environment, and I want to continue to help the environment in as many ways as I can as long as I live. And although my dream job has changed a lot in the past 10 years, it's gone from zookeeper <laughs> to vet to conservationist. If you can see, they're all related to animals and the environment, and I just want to help in any way. All right. Well, Maya, I'm going to warn you that as you grow up and, and as you continue along this path, you're going to come up against some people who aren't going to be very nice to you. And it, it is something that I hope does not discourage you. In fact, I hope it just strengthens you. And the next time someone says, hey, you're just a kid or you're too small, you tell them that you have more at stake here. You have more of a future than us older people, and you want an earth you can live in when you're my age. So stay strong. Thanks. It's what I keep on trying to tell any other kids. The future is ours, which is why our opinions and our efforts matter a lot. All right, Maya, thank you so much. How can people help you? Well, plastic pollution is real, and it's a fact. Climate change is real, and it's a fact. And we have to respond to it fast. Let's start with plastics, with single-use plastics. Say no to plastic PLU stickers, and please sign the pledge and participate in this campaign to help the environment. Remember, every sticker counts. Yeah, all right. Uh, you can go to the Friends of the Earth's website, which is foecanada.org, and look uh, up Maya's Plastic Pollution Campaign. A pleasure speaking with you, Maya. Keep fighting that good fight. Thank you so much for giving this, this, me this opportunity. It was great speaking with you. After the break, how to never give up when life happens. The inspirational authors are next. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. In these next couple of stories, we learn how adversity can inspire and even strengthen. Jim Lang starts us off with a Paralympic goalie who never gave up. Now, I've had the honor and the privilege of speaking to a lot of fascinating and interesting people over the years, but one of them has to rank right up the very top is Paul Rose in New York region, growing up in the region, in Thornhill, lives in the region, and now has authored a book along with veteran broadcaster Roger Lajoie called Never Give Up, and I'm thrilled to be speaking to him on the feed. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Fine. I mean, your story reads like something like a Hollywood script. I, I, I mean, I'm being honest, Paul. I know you and I have known each other a long time. You were a fantastic hockey player in the 70s. You suffered a serious leg injury. You had multiple surgeries. You lose a leg. And at the age of 40, you represent Team Canada at the Paralympics in 2002. I mean, that's, I mean, the odds of that are impossible. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. Even uh, twenty-something years later, it uh, it baffles me. 
when when you're on the ice wearing that maple leaf at 40 representing Canada in in the sledge hockey is just a phenomenal sport what's what's going through your mind that first game well the the first game I played was in Oslo Norway and I still I, I'd just been like six months really uh, um, I was terrified and it was a, Norway was the best team in the world for quite a while uh, and then as I as I started to get better and and really it was all hard work you know I had a great goalie coach uh, I, I never trained with the uh, with the team uh, outside of the the team structure I always trained with able bodied guys and uh, and I think that's what uh, progressed me as fast as it did. I always feel that sports and physical fitness is healing. You, you are very open about you've had struggles. It wasn't always an easy path from being a teenager that hurt your leg to representing Canada at the Paralympics. Was it something healing about all of a sudden discovering your passion for sledge hockey and reaching the heights that you did? Absolutely. When I found out of play, I had serious mental health issues and, uh, and, and uh, addiction issues for years, but that's, First time I got on the ice and I realized that this game, it was hockey. You know, the full contact, guys were playing to like to represent your country is is a massive thing, whether you're playing on para ice hockey, which was sledge hockey now, or for the women's team or the men's team. It's putting that jersey on and the pride of playing for your country. There's no better feeling. Well, and then and you get to hear your country's anthem in 06 when you win the gold. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't heard it since then. But uh, <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, we 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 won in in '06. We shocked the world. Norway was supposed to destroy us. And uh, the one thing I'm really proud of is uh, I got the first shutout in uh, in the uh, in a gold medal game um, ever. Uh, you know, Shannon Zabados got one in 2010 and 14 for the women. Carrie Price got one in 14. But uh, mine and and the sled team, uh, we're the first one ever. Speaking to Paul Rosen on the feed, uh, co-author of a great book called Never Give Up, along with Roger Lajoie, a fantastic sledge hockey player, a gold medalist, a, a counselor, a speaker, public speaker, an author who does a bit of everything. And as you go through this journey now with the book, are, what kind of response are you getting from people getting to know you and your story? Are you getting some interesting feedback back from people that Paul that maybe you didn't even expect? Yeah, that is one of the most incredible feelings is, you know, somebody will get the book. First of all, Roger did an unbelievable job. Shout out to him always. But uh, people will get the book and then they'll say to me two days later, I started reading the book. I'm not really much of a reader and I couldn't stop. I read the book in, in the one night. and it, it, there's, a, there's some incredible, honest stories. We, it took us a long time to put it together. There was, you know, Roger wanted it to be a certain uh, a length. You know, he didn't want it to mm-hmm. be too crazy, 300, 400 pages. So uh, I just kept talking and talking and talking, and Roger put it together. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very uh, happy with the result, to be honest with you. You know, Paul, I, I, it's the book, it's everything else. So you've accomplished so much over the last, say, 15, 20 years, and you just recently celebrated your 63rd birthday. When you think about going ahead to the rest of this year and the future, what kind of other things do you have in mind? Because you're the kind of person that seems, once you decide to do something, it'll get done. Yeah, my biggest thing right now, my biggest journey is uh, addiction and um Breaking the stigma, I had addiction issues for a long, long time. I'm 15 months clean and sober right now. I do a lot with AA and NA, um, and I want to get people to understand, uh, you know, it's suicide prevention months right now. Uh, I, I had 15 months ago a suicide attempt at, uh, I don't know how, well, I do know how I got through it, God, but um, I, I just, that's my goal for, for the rest of the time I'm on this planet is to get people to understand and break the stigma of addiction, mental health, and suicide. Paul, why is it in 2023 there is such a stigma still with people coming to grips with alcohol and drug addiction? Because people still think about the, the the guy under the bridge with the bottle of, uh, uh, you know, whatever in a brown bag or the needles. Uh, they do not understand that addiction and mental health, it hits Everybody, uh, the the post office worker, the mother, it doesn't matter. The the sixteen year old boy or girl that has an injury at school and doesn't know what they're taking. It, if if somebody has cancer, they look at them totally different. But once they find out they're in recovery or they have a, a mental health issue, it's still not where we need it to be. Yeah, and the other thing you broached is a subject about suicide, and unfortunately. 
you know, I'm a, a male over 40, and the stats in Canada for men over 40, it's frightening when it comes to suicide. I had a very dear, very dear friend a couple of days ago who took his life, and, uh, you know, 40 years old. It just, um, it, it, it's, it's baffling right now. We have to do something about it. Paul, for people who want to get your book, I know they can probably go to Amazon Canada. Where else can they look for you? Do you have a website for people who want to see you speak or maybe want to reach out to you, Paul? Yeah, well, they can get it directly from me by just uh, uh, sending me an email at paulrosen577 at gmail.com. And uh, then I will, uh, it's $30 from me, $30 autographed, and I will ship it out to them. And uh, uh, for me, it's just get in touch with me through social media and uh, and. We'll, we'll make it happen. I'm, I'm doing a talk this week for a, a homeless group uh, in Newmarket, and I, I just think giving back is the is the the way you you get um, the relief of what you need in life. Paul, you're one of the good ones and one of my all-time favorite people. Thank you so much for doing this. Quote unquote, never give up. That's why we like Paul Rosing. You're a good man. Thanks, Jim. You too. Shaliza Backus with the COVID-19 patient turned author of Life Happens. I think it's safe to say the pandemic has changed the outlook a lot of people have on life. I think we've learned to live in the moment more and just accept the fact that life happens. And with that being said, Life Happens is actually the title of a book written by COVID-19 survivor Arthur Serkan and his wife, Jenny Spanos. This book was released earlier this week and the couple joined me now to talk about it. How are you guys? Excellent. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, there are, there's lots of ways that you could have documented your journey. You know, we've seen a lot of people documenting things, especially their struggle with COVID on social media and in other ways. So why did you choose to write a book instead? I think um, it was just to kind of uh, show awareness to people and, um, just to kind of spread the word on um, hope and determination and just never, ever give up on things. Even though we go through a lot of struggles in our lives, there's always something that kind of pushes us through. And I don't know, we just kind of figured a book would be the best way to to kind of get our message across. And uh, yeah, this is why we decided. And Arthur, what was the entire experience like for you as a patient? Well, for me, it's, it's even difficult to even talk about it. But uh, being in a coma for 30 days and then waking up uh, after the coma and seeing my uh, my, my partner here, Jenny, uh, my wife, um, and, and she definitely took, took care of me uh, in that aspect. And she just uh, kept on telling me, we're going to we're going to help people get uh, through through stuff like this and she wanted to, to put this book together and obviously with our, our minds uh, together in that sense, we, we came up with this, uh, this book just to let people know that there really is hope. Tell me about after the aftermath of it all. After you woke up, Arthur, what was the recovery process like for you? So I did go into rehab just to learn how to walk, uh, learn how to talk. Uh, I was paralyzed from the neck down, so they had to teach me how to feed myself again, eat all over. So it was it was a learning process, but uh, obviously the help from uh, from all the nurses that were there for me, uh, I, I got through it. A small story I'd like to share is uh, I when I went into the hospital, uh, into the rehab center. Sorry, uh, when I went in there for rehab, uh, I told them that I, I just I want to be home for Christmas. Is all I said. Uh, I was determined to get out uh, by by December. With their help, uh, I did it. I did it in my determination, and uh, they they pushed me uh, as much as they could, obviously, because. Uh, there's only so much you can do when you're when you're paralyzed from the neck down. But they they got my me going again, and I started to walk and talk and uh, and, and feed myself. So I, I was ready to go home and be home with the kids for Christmas. That's all I wanted. That is absolutely incredible. Now you're both dealing with the same situation, but it's still the points of view are very different. Being the caregiver and the patient. So Jenny, how did you really stay positive throughout all this? I know you mentioned it a little earlier, but the recovery is even harder than waiting for him to wake up, I could imagine. Yes, because when you see your loved one who is, you know, who is so alive and and so full of life and, you know, never having an issue and then not being able to do things. I think for me, it was more the driving force for me to push him like to lots of tough love and, you know, don't look at what this is. This is temporary. And 
I think it was that power in me to kind of, you know, coach him to be okay. And, you know, you have the kids, you better be home, you better start again. I think it was just the, my kids was the driving force. Like we said, you, you kind of build that strength to um, just fight for him. And in, in return, he does the fighting himself. And how old were your kids then? They uh, were 12 and 14. Oh, so that's that must have been very difficult trying to explain to them what was happening. Yes, yes, very hard times. Now, the difference between both of your experiences is that, Jenny, you were aware of the whole thing. And Arthur, you obviously had no idea what was going on. So what was that like? For me, it was the whole ordeal was just so horrible. But at the time when you're in it, you just kind of, you know, take everything with a grain of salt and you just go through it. You go through the emotions, you go through everything. And then looking back, you think to yourself, how did I go through this? So I think the whole experience of the the second week of him being on the ventilator, which he was not aware of when he actually started to get worse, for me, it was like, this can't get any worse, right? So, but for him, he doesn't have that recollection. He doesn't have that thought process in his mind. I really don't remember yeah, anything that happened to me remember. for 30 days. Wow. I remember walking I remember walking into the hospital and, and that was it for me. And then waking up 30 days later, that's, that's all I remember. But uh, Jenny pushed me hard and I, I didn't realize, you know, I thought it was, she was just being mean to me sort of thing. But no, she just wanted me to push harder and, and just be home for the kids, come home for the kids, because they were without a dad for, for 30 days. And then the months after in the hospital. Congratulations to the both of you for making it through all of this. It's been a very difficult time for a lot of people. Once again, the book is called Life Happens. Proceeds are going to be donated to the Markham Stovall Hospital Foundation. And if our listeners want to grab a copy, where can they go? Uh, they can get it from Amazon, um, amazon.ca. Just look up the book and uh, you'll be able to get it from there. Under Life Happens. Yeah. Love it. And if they want to follow along with your journeys, can we follow you anywhere? Yep. You can follow us on our um, website on www.buildwithrealestate.com. And you'd be able to get all that information there for what the book is about, what we went through and uh, how we can help uh, people because it's all about giving back and helping people and making them aware. Amazing. COVID-19 survivor Arthur Sirkan and his wife, Jenny Spanos, authors of Life Happens, available now. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Great. Thank, Thank you, you for having, having us. us. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.